I want to tell you about a podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. As a parent myself of a child who's had an IEP since kindergarten and he's now a 10th grader, I know how confusing, overwhelming, frustrating, sometimes daunting the whole process can be. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 Plans. And what I love about it is how easily Juliana explains everything. She answers common questions that probably every parent or caregiver has. She dispels myths and is concise and to the point. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. And there's a direct link in the show notes if you need it. Love addiction at its core is really an injury of parenting, like having not been parented in a way where we feel whole, integrated and secure, we seek out a parent, not a partner. And so it's not really love addiction. It's more like suboptimal parent seeking. (laughs) You're listening to Make Some Noise podcast, episode number 556 with guest Britt Frank. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you're here, uh, partly because one of my favorite people is on the show again, again. Britt Frank is a repeat offender over here on the show, uh, spitting out facts and her her expertise. I am going to tell you about her in just a minute, but if you're a listener of the show, you probably recognize her because she's been on so many times. We have a listener request topic on today. I'll tell you about that once we get started. And when I saw that someone requested this, it was like, I I know the exact person that I need to have on for this topic, and it's Britt. She's just brilliant when it comes to relationships and so many other things that you'll hear about. And before we get into the show, just one quick announcement, and that is I have a couple of openings for coaching this coming fall. If you are wanting some support in your life, maybe you're stuck on something, maybe you need to make a decision, maybe you're having an existential crisis, as many of us are. Or maybe you need to set some boundaries, have some hard conversations, you want better relationships in your life, head on over to andreaowen.com slash links. That's where you'll find everything, including my coaching page. And I get into a lot more specifics on that coaching page so you can see if it's right for you. And then that's where the application is. That application goes right to me. So you don't have to worry about a bunch of strangers seeing all of your deepest, darkest secrets. (laughs) And then we can hop on the phone to see if it's a good fit. There's no obligation when you fill out the application or even have a phone call with me. And I'm always really transparent as to whether I think I can help you or not. Very rarely 
do I get on the phone with people? And then it's it's not a great match, but sometimes it happens. AndreaOwen.com slash links. And so for those of you who are unfamiliar with Brit, let me tell you a little bit about her. Brit Frank's work empowers people to understand their inner mechanisms of their brains and bodies. When we know how things work, the capacity for choice is restored and life can and does change. She received her undergraduate degree from Duke University and her master's from the University of Kansas, where she is now an award-winning adjunct professor. Brit is also a somatic experience practitioner and level one trained in internal family systems. Whether she's leading a workshop, teaching a class, or working individually with private clients, Brit's goal is to educate, empower, and equip people to transform even their most persistent and long-standing patterns of thinking and doing. So without further ado, here is Brit. Brit Frank, welcome back. Hi, I'm so happy to be chatting with you again. Same, same. Did you know I had to Google, I Googled AndreaOwen.com, Brit Frank, love addiction. Cause I was like, have I, I've had you on so many times. I was like, have I already <laughs> had her on to talk about this specific topic? I haven't. <laughs> well, cool. I've, I mean, we talk so much about so many things like off, off air. I can't remember what we do and when. I just wanted to make sure we weren't repeating the same topic. And so uh, you guys, Britt's been on, I think four times previously. I'm just going to like, have you be a part of our team now. The, the in-house therapist. And so I will put those links in the show notes because I know after you listen to this, if you're new to Brit, you're going to want to go back and listen to all those other shows, which are about narcissistic abuse, like healing from that, all kinds of things on trauma and codependence and stuff. But uh, similar to codependence, we're going to, we're here to talk about obsessive love and love addiction, which actually was a suggested topic by a listener. And earlier this year, I sent out a survey. What do you guys want to hear? And this was one of the topics. I have had another expert on Alex Motokaitis, I think is her last name. So I'll pop that link in the show notes too. But it's always good to hear from different experts. I'm I'm super curious. I've never heard you talk about this or even discussed it with you candidly. Like, can you define love addiction? And and is it in the DSM? Like it yeah. What's the deal with this love addiction thing? So, and as a raging recovering love addict, like that was that was harder for me than meth. It was harder for me than opiates. It was harder for me than all of the things combined. You mean recovering from those things? Yes. Okay. Oh my god. And no, it's not a you know love addiction per se. I haven't looked at the most current breakdowns of all the things, but I've never seen that in the DSM at all. It's not really named properly because the problem with love addiction is it has. Nothing nothing to do with love mm-hmm. and addiction is not even though yes it's a you know it's a pattern of behavior that is compulsively repeated and increases despite negative consequences which is the definition of addiction it's really not love addiction has nothing to do with our grown up self being in love love addiction is all about our inner children younger mm-hmm. parts of us desperately clinging to anything resembling love because they're afraid of annihilation, which sounds dramatic, but it does not sound dramatic to me. It's it's a good way to describe it. It is. It's like so dramatic. Like I'm going to be annihilated without this person, but that's what it feels like. Like that's what it feels like. That's so funny. I just recorded a mini sode and it probably came out many weeks before this episode is going to come out where I talked about where I I, I use the expression emotional terror. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I feel. And I just, I mean, I don't know if what I feel is is a normal level of emotions, but it feels like emotional terror sometimes. And and I, 
that is directly related to what the symptoms that when I have felt like quote unquote love addicted or in that place. Oh yeah. And we'll use the phrase love addiction just because it's the most common, you know, it's what we use, but I don't remember who said this quote and I wish I did because I want to attribute credit, but I think it's John Lee who said it, but I don't know. Adults can't be abandoned. They can only be left. So if you're feeling, which I have, and I know you have, like we all have the terror of that abandonment, that's your Mm -hmm. immediate sign, like devastation, pain, grief. Sure. Like adults can feel that. But if you're feeling terror, that's your, that's your that you're in this more younger part childlike state. And that's one of the key defining features of love addiction. If you're in your adult self, you're not going to have fear of abandonment. Uh-huh. If you're in a child state, you sure will, because to be abandoned as a child is death. Like right. that is to be left for dead, which is not dramatic. As an adult, it's just not accurate. That's an interesting distinction. And I, I like that distinction because I've definitely felt places where oh, this might end or, oh, this person doesn't like me (laughs) or this relationship is probably over where it feels painful, but it doesn't kind of drop down into that place of like what I call emotional terror. We were just talking about like it, 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 it still hurts, but there's a, there's a very big part of me that knows I'm going to be okay. Right. Right now, but I'm going to be okay. But with that other place that you talked about, Uh it's completely disorienting. Yep. Cannot think straight. Cannot behave straight. (laughs) Don't know how to behave. It it feels like like drowning with a blindfold on. That's which is why people from the outside, when they look and they get, you know, I they quote whoever these people are, but we've all like encountered them. I would never be cheated on. If I was ever cheated on, I would leave. If someone ever hit me, I would leave. I would never. Do. And it's like, I, I had that judgy part too, before mm-hmm. I got into these relationships where it's like, all of a sudden I am tolerating the most extreme levels of abuse and violence and degradation because the f- terror of being abandoned made it so that I would do literally anything yeah. to avoid that feeling. And it, it's, re- and that's why it's really real. And I want to normalize it for people. Like you're not crazy. Yeah, <laughs> It feels like you're crazy. I'm like, holy crap. I, here I am. I'm speaking for myself, covered in trigger warning, covered mm-hmm. in bruises, having mm-hmm. done the most ridiculous things ever. So this person would not leave me begging like humil. I mean, my love addiction to me is probably one of the more humiliating areas of my story because mm-hmm. of what I was willing to do. But understanding that there, those childlike parts needed to needed to do anything to survive. I didn't know about parts. I didn't know that I had inner child. Like what, what is that? And it's not to absolve myself of blame. It's just to make sense of why in the hell did I do that? Well, that's why. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it doesn't excuse it, but it does make it make sense. And you can't really change anything until it starts to make sense. Until it starts to make sense. Yes. Do you see any correlation or can you talk for a minute about, because I know we're hearing a lot about attachment styles right now. Their, Their attachment styles are having a moment. And <laughs> aren't they? Which drives me bonkers a little bit because it's like, yes, I understand attachment styles from a child development standpoint makes sense. But as adults, our psyches are so complex. It's like you can't really reduce it to I'm anxious avoidant, you know, I'm disorganized. It's like 
I have so many subparts of my psyche and so do you and so does everyone that my attachment style is different with different people depending mm. on which parts of me like my attachment style in the work setting is very different than my attachment style with intimacy is very it, so you can't really reduce it to this is my attachment because my quiz told me I'm mostly right. C's therefore it's just not that simple that's interesting because in the work I do in the daring way the modality based on Brene Brown's research part of one of the modules are, is around what she calls there's a lot of metaphors in that work shame shields and it's the the behaviors that we employ when we're in shame like when we've already dropped into it and there's you know she describes three different shame shields and the call the Wellesley College is actually the one that had done the research just to credit them and we either move towards which is like people pleasing and like brown nosing we move against which is fighting shame with shame or we move away which is completely isolating and specifically in that module we talk about when do you use these shields and with whom because it's going to look different sure. so it sounds similar to the attachment styles but in, in regard to anxious attachment style just like generally speaking whatever parts of you are anxious like, is there a correlation with that with like obsessive love addiction and an anxious attachment style yeah i mean yes is the simple answer right because we wouldn't have these really really deep seated patterns of seeking unavailable partners were there a secure attachment so right. i think that it, it Yes, of course, there's a there's an, a degree of anxious attachment. There's a degree of avoidant attachment. There's also a degree of all of it. Because if you look at a, quote, love addict, a love addicted person's choice of partners, we don't go for a healthy, secure attachment. We right. go for the most toxic, which is really interesting. And when I was learning about love addiction, sex addiction, avoidance, all of that, something really fascinating popped up. Because if you look at a love addict, you would think that their greatest need is intimacy. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a sex addict, you would think that their greatest need is avoidance, but it's actually opposite. A love addict's greatest fear is intimacy. Oh, I believe a that. Is intimacy, right? It's not, it's the thing that we think we so desperately need that we do anything to get it. But in the face of actual intimacy, we flee. Mm -hmm. And so for, and again, this is Pat Karn's work for a love addict, the greatest, or it's PM Melody, I don't remember one of the two, a love addict's great, it's PM Melody, a love addict's greatest fear is intimacy, a sex addict's greatest fear is abandonment, which if you look at the behaviors is totally upside down and backwards. Mm -hmm. But I remember sense. when I first started dating healthy people, I thought I was going to die. It's like, weird. <laughs> I thought I was going to lose my mind. I had to do so much therapy when I started dating healthy people because it was so disruptive. To people my... that have healthy emotional and all boundaries, ah! it is disorienting. Like, huh? what is this? <laughs> I remember the first time I asked my now husband something and he was like, no. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? No? <laughs> What, what is this? What is the sorcery? No, I think I said, like, do you want to do something? He wasn't a dick about it. He was just like, no, or, mm -hmm. you know, just very, very much in not the fawn response. Healthy people say yes when they mean yes. They say no when they mean no. And it's really, really disorienting. Yeah. What is the fawn response for people that don't know? 
The fun response is the people pleasing. So if you think of what Brene Brown calls shame shields, Mm -hmm. the trauma world would call those survival responses, right? Fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Fight Mm -hmm. is I'm just going to resist and push against. Flee is I'm going to run. Freeze is I'm just going to be deer in headlights. And fawn is the love addicts tendency where I'll say, do be anything you need me to say, do be so you don't leave me. Uh. I feel like even just like five minutes of this conversation is like an entire thesis. <laughs> People are going to need to like rewind and, and go back. Okay. What is happening? And like, maybe this is a question about parts, but what is happening to someone, whether it's in their body, their subconscious, their mind, when they feel like they have obsessive love, like when they just can't stop thinking about someone and obsessing on that person? So I think the addiction model is really useful for this because if you were to look at someone's brain when they're in the height of obsessive love, it's no different than the ritualization. You know, if you're a drug addict, you go through the the cycle of okay, I'm fine now. I'm triggered. After the trigger is the obsessive planning to do the thing, whether it's planning mm-hmm. to do your drug or planning your binge or planning your whatever. Then there's the acting out. Then there's the shame, and then we go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the love addiction cycle does mimic that, right? Where we're mm-hmm. doing our life, everything is fine. Then we meet the person or we get the hit online or we match with some whatever. Then the obsessive ritualization thing starts happening. The fantasy starts happening. And that does biochemical things in our brain. And then we act on it if, we, if we're able. Sometimes we don't. We just live in fantasy. But if you act on it, then immediately following is the, what have I done? And then eventually that calms down and then we repeat. And we continue to repeat until, you know, something yeah. Something new happens, but the obsessive love is really a very addictive, ritualizing fantasy level of that cycle. And it's mm-hmm. often, often we know we're in it. It's like, I'm doing the thing again. I'm obsessing again. I'm doing it. Nevertheless, it feels like a part of us has taken over. And the thing we want to do, we don't. And the things we don't want to do, we're doing. And we're getting in the car at midnight, driving yeah. to that very bad person's place. And mm-hmm. off to the races we go. Yes, I've definitely been in that place. And I, I for sure want to get into the solution of it, but I, I do want to spend a little bit more time here. We need to take a, a break and we will be right back. And I'm going to ask you about the 10, I read like these 10 steps of, of if you're a love addict or not. And I want to ask you about them. So we'll be right back. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. 
For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. All right. This is 10, char- 10 characteristics of sex and love addiction. This is from, from SLAAP, S-L-A-A, which is Sex and Love Ad- Addicts Anonymous. So I'm, I'm curious... I'm going to just whip through them. And if there's any that you want to comment on, (laughs) just jump in. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Number one, having few healthy boundaries, we become sexually involved with and or emotionally attached to people without knowing them. Check. (laughs) I made a face. (laughs) (laughs) My face was like, check. Uh Okay. Number two, feeling abandonment and loneliness. We stay in and return to painful, destructive relationships, concealing our dependency needs from ourselves and others, growing more isolated and alienated from friends and loved ones, ourselves and God. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Feeling emotional and or sexual deprivation. We compulsively pursue and involve ourselves in one relationship after another, sometimes having more than one sexual or emotional liaison at a time. We confuse love with neediness, physical and sexual attraction, pity and or the need to rescue or be rescued. Oh, don't get personal. (laughs) We feel empty and incomplete when we are alone. Even though we fear intimacy and commitment, we continually search for relationships and sexual contacts. That kind of sounds like what you were saying before the break. Okay. Number six, we sexualize stress. Oh, we sexualize stress, guilt, loneliness, anger, shame, fear, and envy. We use sex or emotional dependence as substitutes for nurturing care and support. We use sex and emotional involvement to manipulate and control others. I'm going to pause that on that one because it's true. But, oh, I loved being the, I'm going to clutch at my pearls and shock at that. I remember learning because I worked the SLAA program. And I'm like, how dare you say that I'm manipulating other people? I don't manipulate other people. I'm the needy when I am the professional victim here. Like, oh my God, when I realized that that is actually a very intense form of manipulation. One, it's like a trailhead to the shadowiest like ickiest places in the psyche, but there's so, so I just want to normalize if this is you, like mm-hmm. it's not shaming, you're a manipulator, therefore you should feel bad kind of thing. It's like, yeah. my God, parts of me are manipulators. And when I'm going super deep into shadow zone here, but when you can identify with the parts, I'll use myself. When I learned to identify with the parts of myself that manipulated to get their needs met, I was no longer a match for other people who did the same. So my thing was, I'm such a good person. Why am I always picking these horrible people? My picker must be broken. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just so here to be loved and I'm picking these toxic people. It's like, oh, wait, there are parts in me that resonate with those parts. And again, I'm not saying that anyone deserves abuse. I didn't deserve what I got. But there is a resonance between people of like like levels of, you know, 
I don't want to say brokenness because I don't believe people are broken, but like levels of injury, you know, water Mm -hmm. seeks its own level is something they say in that world that you'll often seek someone who is at the same level of trauma or injury as you. And when I learned to identify with my own manipulative, like my own manipulative parts, suddenly I no longer needed to project them out into other people. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, I, I own all my shadow parts. Therefore, I don't need to manifest them in a partner. I own all my shadow parts. Therefore, I don't need to manifest them in a partner. I'm going to rephrase that because I'm not saying you manifested your abuse or your perpetrators. And another way of saying that is when I can own all of the parts of myself, I no longer need to project them and see them in the other as another. It's like, yeah, no, I have a, I'm a human. So are you, we all come with a full set of parts. Doesn't mean we all act the same. It doesn't mean we all do the same things, but it does mean we all have parts that manipulate. We all have parts that think quote bad thoughts. We all have parts that go to any lengths to get needs met. And so again, it's not a comparison. It's just a recognition of if I can own my manipulative parts, I can learn to parent them. Love addiction at its core is really an injury of parenting, like having not been parented in a way where we feel whole, integrated and secure, we seek out a parent, not a partner. And so it's not really love addiction. It's more like suboptimal parent seeking. Yeah. I'm going to get back to this list in a minute, but that made me think of one question for you. Like, is there anyone who's been parented and can grow up to feel, what did you say? Secure? Like, have you met anyone? I mean, you're a therapist, so probably not. (laughs) Like, have you heard of these unicorns? It's not my, it's not my target audience. I've (laughs) met a few people who, I mean, all people are people, right? Everyone humans in a not ideal way all the time, but I have met a few people who generally like themselves, who like will drink a beer and then be done, who will eat a meal and then not need to count all the calories and burn it off, who sleep when they're tired. It's utterly bizarre to me. And I want to like study them under a microscope. I'm like, well, this is what it looks like. I wonder if it's a combination of they've been parented by secure people who've done the work and then they have also done the work. Because I've always said, you know, as, as a parent myself, no matter how hard we try to be a great parent, our children are going to experience things through different lens than we hope that they would or that we intend. So they are going to end up in therapy talking about me, like my children, no doubt. They're like 16 and almost 14. Like there are, there's already stuff, but, but yeah, I've definitely been the manipulator and in years past and now, and have done it even more recently, but I notice it very quickly when I'm doing it and it feels gross, even though I I might like continue doing it for a little bit, but then I'm like, I need to stop doing this. It just, it feels really uncomfortable. Yeah, which is, again, though, awareness without shame creates change. And a love addiction won't heal simultaneously when you're in a shame spiral. So it's like, oh, wow, I'm going into my seductress or, wow, I'm going into my I'm going to morph myself into whatever I think this person needs to be. But like when you come into conscious awareness of that, then you can start to make choices Mm -hmm. and no addiction heals in the absence of conscious choices. So we have to be able to just sort of grit our teeth, hold our nose and be like, yep, that's me. That's a part of me. That part, and Dick Schwartz, the IFS creator, he says there are no bad parts. There are bad behaviors, but none of our parts are bad. If we can understand what's making them tick, then we can help them find better ways to get those needs met. Okay. I love that. All right. Number eight, we become immobilized or seriously distracted by romantic or sexual obsessions or fantasies. (laughs) Immobilized. (laughs) That's a great word. Yeah. That checks out. Stuck. Just stuck. Yep. 
Number nine, we avoid responsibility for ourselves by attaching ourselves to people who are emotionally unavailable. Check. 10, we stay enslaved to emotional dependency, romantic intrigue, or compulsive sexual activities. To avoid feeling vulnerable, this is number 11, to avoid feel, feeling vulnerable, we may retreat from all intimate involvement, making uh, mistaking sexual and emotional anorexia for recovery. Mm-hmm. So does that mean like, just like, I'm, I'm going to be celibate, like I'm not dating anyone and thinking that's like, uh, by avoiding that vulnerability, we think like that's recovery. Which again, just to be nuanced for some people, that makes sense. You know, for Mm -hmm. some people, and I know people like this and I treated people like this, where they're just so thoroughly done with having to deal. And this, this, this work is really hard that they have consciously chosen avoidance as just, you know, like I have a, a woman I've treated who's a little bit older and she's done the relationship thing. She's been through it all. She's like, I just don't want to do it anymore. And is she avoiding technically that's avoidance, but it's also a fully reasonable and totally honorable choice. If you yeah. really don't want to do it, you, you don't have to. There's nothing that says real recovery means you need to be in relationships. If it's uh-huh. your, now, that's different. If you're saying I'm done, but secretly you want to still do it, but right. If you're done and you just don't want to deal with sex or love or intimacy, like you don't have to. Yeah. I also think that's you know something to say about like, no one can really tell you how your recovery is going to look mm-hmm. like, you know, as long as you are being truthful and honest with yourself, which is, that's why I got to thine own self be true tattooed on my foot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause that's the most important. Yeah. Okay. And the last one, and we'll put this link in the show notes for people who want to we want to look at this a little bit more thoroughly. Number 12, uh, we assign magical qualities to others. We idealize and pursue them, then blame them for not fulfilling our fantasies and expectations. <laughs> I'm masterful at that. Oh my God. How dare you not be the person I have projected upon you? This is bullshit. Like, no, 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 no. But that goes back to outsourcing, right? We, we not only outsource our shadow parts, right? But we also outsource our magic. So if you think that you are not powerful or not creative, you're going to find a partner who is and then attribute these magical qualities to them. And then because you've outsourced your own parts to someone else to be left by them is to be like to, is to, is to leave yourself. Yeah. So it's not just the end of a relationship. It oh. feels like someone is taking your parts with them when they go. Because you have made up this fantasy of what that looks like and it belongs to them. Correct. What a mess we make. It's such a mess. And with love addictions also, like if you're addicted to heroin, there's a degree to which you understand there's going to be a detox withdrawal period from hell. And this is what it looks like. And here's what you can plan for. With love addiction, nobody talks about the very real physiological Mm -hmm. detox. And with anything your brain is used to having, when it stops having it, it's going to resist. But people don't realize the first two weeks off of a relationship, you, you're you going to have stomach cramps. You're going to throw up. You're going to sweat. You're going to be up all night. And you're not going to know why. And if you don't plan, like, I'm going to break up with my person on Sunday and then show up for work on Monday. And right. it's like, nah, that you need to plan for a really intense detox withdrawal, because if you don't plan for it, it's going to hit you. And then you're going to say, screw this and go right back. Yeah. And then, into, and I, I find it similar to, you know, I, I only have the experience of, of recovering from the, the, the biggest substance in my life was alcohol. And so I understand, you know, when my dad died, I thought about drinking again, like there's been moments where I've had those thoughts of like, God, 
bottle of wine sounds amazing just because I wanted to run away from my feelings. That was it. It wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the wine. It was just the symptom. But I have found the same thing to be true with old relationships and, and, you know, if we're calling it love addiction or anything like that in times of turmoil, when my emotions get kicked up really about anything, I find myself like, wonder what that person's doing on social media. It's like, we're looking for some kind of fix or certainty or like you said, like this fantasy that we have in our mind, like we want like the evidence around it. And it's just, it that obsession can get kicked up over and over again as the years go by. Which is why no contact when possible yeah. is really the best option. Because even to look at someone's Instagram, they don't know you're doing it. You haven't actually connected with them, but to your brain, because our brains have not evolved as fast as social media, mm-hmm. to your brain, you have now had a connection with that person and you're going to get a little micro hit of dopamine and that's not good. So mm-hmm. to look at someone's profile is still going to trip up that whole addiction cycle. Like it's yeah. so not helpful for our brains to online spy. It's not. Okay. So let's move into like the healing out there. And there's so much advice online, especially on social media. Again, like this whole topic is having a day, especially I think on TikTok. So what, what is your take? And I know that this could probably be many hours of, of a lecture, but like, where would you start with someone who comes into your office, who is struggling with the kind of uh, textbook love addiction? So, and this is tricky and it's controversial and my way is not the only way. This is just how I approach it. How would you approach a client who came in drunk? And I've had that happen. I've had clients come in drunk and high. There's not a lot of healing that you can get to when someone is drunk. Now, can you do some things? Sure. Like we can, sure, we can do some strategies. We can do some cognitive stuff. We can do some parts work to a degree. But if someone is chemically altered in the therapy room, that does make it really difficult to get to root cause resolution. And with love addiction, people don't realize that you're essentially coming in high. And so that does create a barrier to a lot of the healing work. So the first order of business with any chemical addiction is you have to quit before we can heal. Mm -hmm. So the first order of business is not heal, it's detox and withdraw. And with love addiction, people are like, I want to understand this. It's like, well, like we can sit here and I'm happy to whiteboard out how we got here. And I'm happy to discuss your attachment style. And I'm happy to sort of diagram out all of the factors, but nothing is going to bypass the detox withdrawal process. And so that's really, let's make a plan for who are your people? What are your places and things? What are your resources? What are all of the choice points available to you to get through it's usually two to three weeks before you feel like you're not going to die anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know that's not a hard and fast. That's just sort of a general post-acute withdrawal will peak around the first week. It'll by week three of no contact, you're going to feel less like dying every day. You'll feel like crap, but it won't yeah. be the terror will have calmed down, mm-hmm. but we've got to do that first. And no one wants myself included. No one wants to do that. It's like, no, no, no. I want to be high and heal at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> have your cake and eat it too. Okay. We need to take one more break. And when we come back, I want to, I want to talk about that a little bit more. And then I want to ask you about reparenting. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. 
I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So so I'm clear on, on what, what you just talked about before the break. Someone can come in and talk about their behaviors in the past and sort of their patterns. And then you sort of talk about like, well, that sounds a little bit like love addiction, whether it is or whether whether it isn't, just those kind of patterns. And if they're not willing to like go no contact with the person that they're obsessing on at the moment or whatever it is. So that's just more of just like kind of an unpacking of patterns and behaviors and things like that. Right. So if if someone when they do decide, okay, I'm done, I'm going to go no contact. I really want to heal myself so that I can hopefully make better choices and have better boundaries. What is, what is the process that you might take them through? And, and then I'll ask you about reparenting later. Cause I want to make sure we talk about that. <laughs> I don't know if that's two separate conversations. No, I mean, and again, it depends on what kind of therapy we're doing, right? Like mm-hmm. doing a parts work IFS internal family systems approach is going to look a lot different than doing a DBT approach, which DBT is more skills based. Like if mm-hmm. you if you feel this, do this. And I did a lot of DBT therapy personally when I was going through my love addiction stuff between DBT and CBT. P.S. DBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, and right. that's working with your thoughts, challenging your thought distortion. Okay, yeah. Value so DBT is dialectical behavior therapy, which is just like a really fancy way of saying lots of things can be true at the same time. Oh, okay. and it's not all black and white, and DBT mm. is not just thought work, it's also distress tolerance and mindfulness and interpersonal relational skill building. And it's great for that. Okay, so it sounds like DBT is like a step beyond CBT, like it's like master's yeah. level from CBT. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, all right, please continue. And DBT doesn't do trauma healing. And that's the problem with love addiction is you're not going to get clean, quote, I hate that word, but you're not going to get, quote, clean from love addiction and heal your trauma at the same time. DBT will help you stop doing the thing Mm -hmm. so that you can then address the root cause stuff that 
led to the thing in the first place. Mm -hmm. But like step one, we have to stop doing the thing. So we've got to create a plan, a strategy, create the conditions for that to happen. And then once you're like not doing the thing, then we can address the trauma. But from the parts perspective, IFS, you know, addiction is a self-protective function. Like addiction is a way to self-protect. It's not about self-sabotage. It's not, you're not at war. This is why I love it so much. You're not fighting with your mind. It's that you have a protective system that will do anything if it thinks you're in trouble and need to stay alive. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be friends, the protectors, not fight them. That's why I don't like all of the battle war fighty metaphors with addiction. I got a battle addiction. No, you need to befriend the parts of you that learns they lost their fight with addiction. Yeah. Yes. It's like, that's no, that's not the right. You're not at war. Like my whole mission in life is for Pete in my work is for people to not feel at war with their mind. It's like, imagine if all the voices in your head could get along, what could life look like? Like what could be possible if all of your voices in your head got along and IFS teaches you how to do that. And addictive behaviors don't need to be there if your parts trust that there's an adult in charge. So I don't know if I answered your question, but like, that's where, yeah. Well, in a roundabout way, I like that last part too, that you just said, like addictive behaviors don't need to be there. If, what did you say? If an adult is in charge, if you're, if the parts of your personality trust that there's a capable, competent leader, adult in charge of everything, then the addiction doesn't need to be there to protect you. Like if you're, yeah. if your parts that use addiction go, oh, hey, look, there's an adult in charge. I can lay down what I'm doing. I can put my mm -hmm. pipe down. I can put Tinder down. I can put whatever down because that person's going to make sure that I'm safe. <laughs> I feel like, and I, and I, and I want to say this out loud because I wonder if there's other people listening who can relate. I know a lot of people listening and just people in general have, you know, their, their root cause comes from their childhood. Something happened and, you know, which then makes us triggered as adults to engage in these behaviors to protect us. Like you just said, mine and the more therapy I do, the more I have, have come to this conclusion and believe it with all of my might is mine as an inner teenager. My childhood was, was really great. You know, I was, I'm super blessed in that way. And it wasn't until I was a teenager where I experienced the trauma. And, you know, I know for a lot of people, they say when they do the inner child work, like how scared their inner child is. And I'm like, Mine is angry. Yeah. My inner teenager is fucking pissed. And I think this is why, and I've said this a hundred times on the on the podcast, I don't have a problem accessing my anger. I don't know why, but I just, <laughs> I just, you know, a lot of women really struggle with that. I'm like, not mine. I can, it's in my backpack. I can grab it like Wonder Woman's sword. And so what's interesting to me is, is um, that's who's in charge when I'm at my worst. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always come out as anger. It can come out in manipulation. It can come out in, but it's fascinating. And again, I say that maybe somebody's having an aha moment over there. Maybe, maybe you have a combination of hurt inner child and angry teenager or opposite, whatever. But I just think it's, it's, it was worth being said. So I want to, the last thing I want to ask you before we have to go is about reparenting and what you just said, you know, having the adult in charge. How do we do that? What does the path look like to get to that place? Yeah. And I really do believe that the path to healing for love addiction is not abstinence. You know, it's different with chemicals. Like, no, you can't do heroin and have a happy life. Like that doesn't mm -hmm. really work. But the solution to love addiction is self-parenting. It's not yeah. just, you can be abstinent from a behavior and not be transformed in any meaningful way. Like your life will get better if you quit doing the thing, but your life is going to become amazing when you start to realize that you 
the parenting that you needed, the support that you needed when the trauma happened, even if you don't know what the trauma is, like you don't need to be able to pinpoint this happened when, therefore, just assume if you're quote love addicted, something went wrong somewhere between when you were born and right now, you don't need to know what it is. So to do self-parenting, first, you need to recognize that your, your personality is not just one singular thing. We were all taught your personality is just I, this is me. I am an addict. I am a whatever. I am a angry person. It's like, no, our personalities are really effing complex, which means mm-hmm. you have younger parts and teenage parts and early 20s. Like you've got lots of people running around in there. And so rather than thinking in I, me, my self-parenting becomes possible when there is an I separate from the they. So like I've got all my parts. I am not them. They are not me. I am in charge of them. I can care for them. I can tend to them. I can love them, which changes your inner monologue to an inner dialogue. Instead of, I just really, I, I know this is bad for me. I really shouldn't pick up the phone. I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I don't get in the car. I just really need to not do the thing. Self-parenting looks like, oh my God, 14 year old Brit. I know, I know baby girl. I know you want to go over there so bad. I know you're in pain. I know you think this is going to fix it. It's not. And I love you too much to let this happen, but I'm going to be here with you every step of the way. If we need to lay on the floor of the bathroom all night and cry, I will be here with you. Like that's self-parenting is switching from I talk to us talk. Okay. And I, I, I know that it's too hard to like round up in, in three minutes to like, <laughs> like what that journey looks like. Do you, is there any books that you recommend or like on, cause I know reparenting is having a little bit of a, a moment right now too. Well, the problem with reparenting is that we all want to start doing it with the high level stuff, like our addictions and our traumas and our bad behaviors. It's like, we've, if we're going to learn to self-parent, we have to start with the easy stuff. So like, hey, inner child, what do you want to wear today? Like how many of us get dressed and have no idea who we're getting dressed for? Like, if you look at my closet, you can tell that I have many parts of my personality because it's like these wardrobes don't belong together. Because like my nine-year-old likes pink and sparkly things. And my 15-year-old is like all black and life is death and meaningless. And then like my preppy phase from call, like it's like, whose closet is this? So there's a really, it's an older book. It's called um, Self-Parenting, A Guide to Your Inner Conversations. And it's this little yellow book that looks really happy and silly. And it just starts with, let's get to know each other. It's like any relationship. You don't start a relationship at level 20. You start with, hey, what's your name? How you doing? What do you like to do? And we, if we're going to self-parent effectively, we have to start with how would you treat someone that you're meeting for the first time? Like if I was just Mm -hmm. meeting you for the first time, I wouldn't be like, Andrea, why are you in this relationship? What is wrong with you? Get your shit together. Stop. It's like, hi, Mm -hmm. I'm Brit. You want to go get coffee? Like, let's get to know each other. And it's the same Mm -hmm. process and it's hard and it's awful and it's disgusting and gross and awkward and a hundred percent worth it. (laughs) So it's like a workbook. Uh, that book you t- kind of like a like internal family systems has lots of great workbooks i mean if you just google internal family systems they have a library of stuff i really mm-hmm. like self-parenting a guide to your inner conversations 
I'll send you a link to it um, yeah. because it's it's simple. And the mm-hmm. method that they use is called dominant, non-dominant journaling, where like if you're left, mm-hmm. you ask the I questions with your left hand and you answer with your right and you feel absolutely like outside your body. You're like, who's answering these questions? Like m- when I started doing it, my inner child, my non-dominant hand would write things like, I am scared. I'm like, what the hell is happening? Am I possessed? But it's a great way to connect. You know, I just asked her like, what would you like for dinner tonight? I am scared. It's like, oh shit. But there are practice. It's like any, you know, it's a muscle that you build. It takes practice Mm -hmm. and building muscles hurts and you get sore and you keep showing up and you do little by little until all of a sudden you're doing the impossible. That's recovery. And that's the same process Mm -hmm. for self-parenting. Okay. We'll put that, we'll put that workbook link in the show notes. And remember everybody, if you buy that book from my link, I make like 20 cents. So if you want to support the show, (laughs) I cannot thank you enough. It does help. Okay. We are out of time. And I, I think I need to have you on at least once every six months so we can have these conversations. I think, you know, you and I just have so much good conversation chemistry and, and have such similar stories. I think we know like how quick, how to quickly like get into the nitty gritty. It's like, here's how we behave like shit. (laughs) 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 We're both transparent about it. So I hope that's helpful to the audience. Is there anything that you want to say before we close that you may want like circle back to or add in order to feel complete? Yeah, this one's so important to me. Like love addiction can heal. Like you do not have to have a life defined by this thing. I don't, I'm not, I'm not cured. Like it's still there, but like, Mm -hmm, I don't wake up all day, every day feeling like I'm getting my ass handed to me by life. You know, like you can create the capacity to make choices and it's awful and gross and terrible and totally worth it. But like this thing does and can get better. Yeah. Thank you for that. And everyone, thank you for listening. I'm sure you are going to go back and listen to this one more than once and maybe put it on like, you know, 0.08 times slow because both Britt and I talk pretty <laughs> fast. So thank you for being here. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, did you know there's free secret podcast episodes waiting for you that are not part of my regular podcast feed? Yes, andreaowen.com slash free. And you just sign up, you get a link sent to you. It's very secret. It's like a secret club. We don't have a secret handshake. Don't worry about that. But it's these motivating podcast episodes that I made for you. They're under 20 minutes each. There's three of them. They're for wherever you are in your life. So head on over there and grab them. They range from really supporting you and seeing you where you are and being compassionate all the way to giving you a giant kick in your ass and telling you how amazing and gorgeous and phenomenal you are. So andreaowen.com slash free and get your hands on that free podcast feed. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're gonna talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. 
I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.